1 Kings 22, uh, starting at verse 1. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, uh, went down to see king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that the... Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here who we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. Here's Micaiah, son of Imlah, the king shall not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlar, at once. Dressed in, the royal, in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, where all the prophets were, were all the, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of... Ke Kenanah had made iron horns and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man to another, as one man, the other prophets are are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favourably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? And they will jump down to verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commander saw Jehoshaphat there, uh, they thought, Surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. 
but someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armour. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting, I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran into the floor of the chariot and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army. Every man to his town, everyone to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and inlaid with ivory and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Israel? Ahab rested with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Thanks, Matt. Morning, brothers. Good to be with you again. Let's pray as we begin. Uh, Father, as we uh, come to the end of uh, the book of 1 Kings, we pray that you would uh, be with us as we uh, step through this passage and help us to uh, draw near to you as we uh, hear what you are saying to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I, I remember one night uh, several years ago watching TV, just channel flipping, and uh, I came across a World War II movie called Force 10 from Navarone, which had uh, Harrison Ford in it. And if you haven't seen it, you probably haven't. It's a kind of a follow-up to the classic The Guns of Navarone, and, uh, but a little bit, I guess, like Baklava. They probably should have stopped at one. Um, <laughs> it's not really a very good movie. Uh, so... Basically, it's a behind-enemy-lines kind of movie, and it centres around an impregnable bridge that the heroes have to take out, or the German forces will just come across it and flatten the resistance. And it seems like an impossible situation until they hit on the idea of destroying a dam a couple of miles upstream. And so there's one character, Miller, who is the explosive expert who comes up with a plan uh, with a limited supply of uh, explosives, munitions, and two of the group go on essentially what is a suicide mission to plant the bomb. They get in there, they set off the explosives, but to their surprise, the explosion is just tiny. Right? It doesn't blow them up, doesn't kill them, and nothing seems to happen to the dam. But in the confusion with all the dust and everything, they're able to make their escape, all the while they're cursing Miller for sending them on such a useless mission. Meanwhile, on the opposite side of the uh, dam, on an opposite hill, another member of the group gets furious with Miller and uh, starts throttling him. But then you hear an alarm sound in the distance and a tiny crack appears in the dam wall. A little trickle of water comes out, which then starts getting bigger and bigger. Chunks start falling out of the wall and then the whole thing bursts and sends millions of tonnes of water um, rolling down just in time to take out, uh, take out the tanks. And everyone goes from wanting to kill Miller to celebrating him as the hero who not only masterminded the whole thing with a few tiny explosives, but was so in control of the process, he even gave the guys time to escape unharmed. Well, uh, you don't need to watch it now. That's <laughs> just a spoiler alert. <laughs> a little bit too late for that. Uh, it wasn't the greatest war movie. You're not actually missing that much. But I think there are some really striking parallels to what we see here in 1 Kings 22. Um, as we see Ahab meet his end. And what we see in this chapter is that the sovereign God 
who holds all power in his hands, often works in ways that seem initially unimpressive and weak, but in the end testify all the more clearly to his complete control over everything and his unbreakable plan to save his people and overcome sin. So let's get into it. I've got three points from the passage. Ahab tries to manipulate God's word, verses 1 to 14. God's word manipulates Ahab, verses 15 to 28. And then Ahab ends, God's plan continues. That's verses 29 to 53. And then we'll bring home uh, the series with God's word and you. So first, verses 1 to 14, Ahab tries to manipulate God's word. Now, you may remember I uh, mentioned at the beginning of this series that the last third of the book of 1 Kings is devoted to the details of this 1 King Ahab's rule, much like the first third is devoted to Solomon's rule. And in many ways, Ahab is presented as the anti-Solomon of kings, and uh, his reign really is the one that sends Israel, the northern kingdom, over the edge. From Ahab onwards, it's really a spiral down to their destruction. But to really appreciate why Ahab is so important and why he's such an anti-Solomon in, in various regards, you actually need to go back to Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, where God sets out the template for the requirements of Israel's king. And there are three main things that Israel's king must do. Number one, he must live by God's word. Number two, he must use his power to serve. And number three, he must not be greedy for his own gain. And 1 Kings 20 to 22 presents Ahab as directly rejecting every facet of that commissioning. So just as 1 Kings 17 to 19 is a three-part failure of Baal to be Israel's God, 1 Kings 20 to 22 is a three-part failure of Ahab to be Israel's king. 1 Kings chapter 20 shows his disregard for following God's word in the, uh, uh, in the war with Aram or Syria. 1 Kings 21 shows his abuse of power in the murder of Naboth. And 1 Kings 22 shows his greed in trying to manipulate God's word for his own gain. And so this chapter revolves around Ahab's attack on this place called Ramoth, place called Ramoth Gilead. Uh, so back in 1 Kings chapter 20, Syria or Aram had attacked Israel and had been beaten, but some territory of Israel's remained in their hands. Now, technically, it was the king's duty to retake it because it was part of God's promised land to Israel. But Ahab's motivation seems to have been more because Ramoth Gilead, which we think was about there on that map, was also the intersection of two major trade routes. And so lots of revenue would pass through. So whoever controlled Ramoth Gilead, uh, I suppose it would be a little bit like owning the M2 or something. You know, every beep of the E-tag, music to your ears. So three years after the war, Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, has come to see Ahab, uh, probably because we find out Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, has gotten engaged to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. And uh, you find out in two kings just how disastrous this move is, but here it's Ahab's opportunity to ask Jehoshaphat to help him retake Ramoth-Gilead. Now Jehoshaphat replies in verse 4, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, which I guess translated into modern Aussie means something like, oh yeah, no worries, let's do it. 
But then in verse 5, Jehoshaphat, who is presented at this point at least as naive but still godly, uh, throws a spanner in the works by saying, hang on, hang on, shouldn't we check this with Yahweh first? Now, initially, this doesn't seem to be a problem for Ahab because he's got a stack of prophets ready to go for just this sort of situation. And so verse 6, he goes to his prophets and he says, look, should we go up? And they reply, go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. And you can almost imagine Ahab saying to Jehoshaphat, sweet, God is on our side, there you go, let's get going. But of course, everything is wrong with this picture, and the writer of Kings gives us lots of clues as to how farcical this whole situation is, but more seriously, how shambolic spirituality and therefore morality has become in Israel under Ahab. So first, the number of Ahab's prophets, 400 in verse 6, versus one true prophet, Micaiah, who we'll meet in a moment, should remind us of chapter 18, the hundreds of false prophets of Baal against the one true prophet Elijah. And second, these prophets actually try a bit of theological smoke and mirrors to try and sneak it past Jehoshaphat. See, did you notice the language change between verses 5 and 6? You see it in English in the spelling of the word Lord. So in verse 5, Jehoshaphat says, we should seek the counsel of the Lord, Yahweh, in small caps. But the prophet's reply in verse 6 is, Go, for the Lord, lowercase, Adonai, will give it into your hands. And that word Adonai, Lord or Master, in the ancient world could be applied to any divine being. So there's actually a little bit of theological sleight of hand going on here. So uh, any Coke lovers in the room? Obviously. Uh, Think about a situation where, I don't know, you're planning a party and you ask a friend to get the Coke And they go to the shop, they see that Pepsi's on special, and even though they know it's travesty, it's wrong, they get the Pepsi instead. And then you ask them, did you get the Coke? And they say, oh, the cola? Yeah, 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 we we got it, we got it, we got exactly what you want. Jehoshaphat says, can we check with Yahweh? Ahab's prophets go, yes, the Lord says go. Now, actually, later on in this chapter, these same false prophets will claim to speak for Yahweh, And in one sense, even without realising it, they will. But can you see what a sham religion has become under Ahab? God's word should be directing Ahab to godliness, but Ahab's trying to direct God's word for his own greed. And in verses 10 to 12, you see what an utter spectacle it has all become with dress-ups, dancing with this mask with horns, and a chorus of yes-men. And uh, as I was reflecting on this part of the passage, I I couldn't help but think how often this repeats itself in Christian history. Uh, I mean, in general, but especially in Christian history, where you have leaders, people who try and use God to justify their own desires and set up a smokescreen of respectability and positivity that hides a corrupt, manipulative, and self-centred heart. Uh, I took my boys for a haircut the other day, and amongst the pile of magazines, I found a book called History's Greatest Scandals, Shocking Stories of Powerful People. Um, It's quality stuff. But in there, there were two examples of Christian leaders, uh, Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, uh, the American televangelists from the 80s, And as you read the details, um, the details of both were almost point for point with Ahab here in 1 Kings 22. Leaders 
who tried to claim God's endorsement for their greed and set up a facade of dress-ups, dancing, singing, giving off a sheen of Christian respectability and positivity, but underneath corruption, abuse and damaging so many people. But it's not just the American televangelists of the 80s, is it? And I'm sure you are very aware of some more examples closer to home and more immediate to us where similar things have happened. It's a real threat, isn't it? It's a real danger for us. And so this passage should drive home to us how critical it is to keep simple, genuine engagement with God and submission to his word at the heart of all we do, both in ministry and personally. We don't need the bells and whistles. We need genuine engagement with the person and word of God. And I don't know about you, but if I look honestly, I actually think it's pretty easy to sense a lot of Ahab in my own heart. And we in Christian leadership, we're particularly susceptible to it, aren't we? Yeah, it is easy to go through the motions, to do that professional ministry surface thing, all the while being a smokescreen for a heart that is steeped in sin. It's in all of us, isn't it? So how do we guard against it? Uh, I found Jerry Bridges so helpful um, in his famous saying, preach the gospel to yourself every day. It's a great idea to start each day by just reminding yourselves of those core truths again. God loves you. Jesus died and rose to save you. So you are right with God, not because of anything you do, but only because of what Jesus did. I find that so helpful in keeping me grounded and centred on God and helping me to detect when I might be drifting and need to correct course and maybe confess to God or others. Have you got a method for staying on course with God throughout your life and ministry? If you don't, let me encourage you to make sure you have one. Uh, I find uh, Bridges' two books, The Disciplines of Grace and Respectable Sins, really, really helpful. If you haven't read them yet, uh, they're well worth a read. But the bottom line is, brothers, never get sick of the simple, wonderful truths of the gospel and never move from Jesus alone as the heartbeat of life and ministry. Uh, I love that song, um, Yet Not I But Through Christ In Me, and that final line, when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Wouldn't that be a glorious banner for your ministry to sit under for your life? Make sure you do that and don't become an Ahab. Now, in verses 13 to 28, we see everything that Ahab does and plans completely backfire on him. Instead of controlling God's word for his own gain, God's word controls him to his own end. You see, Jehoshaphat isn't completely taken in by Ahab's sham prophets. And so in verse 7, he says, no, 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 no. Are there any prophets of Yahweh left? And Ahab's response in verse 8 is so childish, isn't it? There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. Right? He's my Kaya, son of Imla. It's almost comical in its childishness, isn't it? But again, so like us, isn't it, in our sinfulness? 
We so much love approval over correction. And it is so easy to have that knee-jerk reaction to criticism that, oh, he just hates me. Uh, I'm trying to dad coach one of my kids' basketball at the moment. And uh, I tell you what, it is so frustrating when you're trying to do everything you can to help him improve and you get that pushback and resentment and, yeah, okay, dad, I already know this. (sighs) And then I think back to when my dad taught me golf. (laughs) And I think, yeah, what goes around comes around, hey? But it is. It's actually a mark of maturity and humility and godliness to be able to stop that reaction and accept and welcome correction where it's warranted, isn't it? Is that an area that you need to keep working on? It is for, uh, for a lot of us, isn't it? That pride and resentment, uh, we've got to fight it. So do you need to keep on working at fighting that, stopping, listening, and weighing up? Are the words they're saying to me true? Is the criticism true? Do I need to change? But anyway, to get Jehoshaphat to sign on the dotted line, Ahab finally summons Micaiah. And look, you know, there's clearly bad blood between them, as the little, um, you know, sarcastic interchange between them shows. But eventually, Micaiah gives Ahab Yahweh's genuine answer as to whether he should attack Ramoth Gilead. Verse 17. Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And Yahweh said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. In other words, Ahab, if you go up, not only will Israel be defeated, but Israel will have no master. In other words, you'll die. So you reckon you should go or not? We see Ahab's response in verse 18, and it is utterly tragic. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? He's missed the whole point. This is God graciously warning you that the endeavour you're about to embark upon is sinful and doomed to failure and your response is, see, he just doesn't want me to shine. Now, Micaiah keeps going on in verses 19 to 23 with this vision of God's heavenly court and the deceiving spirit that God is going to send to entice Ahab. And it's a bit of a strange episode and some question whether God seeming to use deception actually casts doubt on the purity of his character. But I think when you read it carefully, that actually is no deception. God tells Ahab exactly what he is doing. And so I think uh, the analogy that comes to mind is like a lay-down mazare in 500. I don't really know how to play 500. (laughs) I just want to say that, put that out there now. But I know that the idea of a lay-down mazare is that your hand is so strong, there is absolutely no need to hide anything. You just lay it out on the table for all to see and sort of, you know, gloat in your victory at every step. And here through Micaiah, God, in a sense, lays everything out on the table before Ahab and says, think about it. You've got my prophets who say things you don't like, but they always come true. Then you've got your prophets who just tell you what you want to hear. But you know what? They are speaking through a lying spirit. And the reason I know that is because I gave the spirit permission to do it. So what do you think you should do, Ahab? Listen to me or listen to them? So can you see how this is not just God's judgment on Ahab? 
it's also a last gracious appeal to Ahab to humble himself at the last post and listen to God's word before it's too late for him and too late for Israel. And again, brothers, I think we ought to learn from this. That is, when God puts obstacles, difficulties, stumbling blocks in our way, we don't like it, do we? But when things don't go how we want or how we expect or how we plan, it's not a sign that God is out to get us. It may well be a sign of his kindness in warning us that we're going the wrong way and are headed for disaster. Now, you can't always say that because sometimes things just go wrong in a sinful and broken world. But it is always worth using these times of uh, uh, sorry, these times of uh, things going wrong, sorry, as a warning from, uh, to see if there is a warning from God that we need to confront something and turn away from a sin before it wreaks havoc on us. But sadly, Ahab doesn't heed God's word, and so finally, verses 29 to 53, God's judgment falls on him. Ahab ends, God's plan continues. Uh, Ahab dismisses Micaiah's words, throws him in prison, and marches on Ramoth-Gilead. But even as he defies God's word, you see his insecurity and cowardice come out. He says, I'm not going to listen to you, Micaiah. And yet in verse 30, he takes the precaution of sending Jehoshaphat into battle in his royal robes while he goes in disguise as a normal soldier. Now, this does seem like a clever plan, doesn't it? You know, fly under the radar, don't make yourself a target, have a human meat shield, should be right. But you cannot get around God's word. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction, whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Ahab is a man who sowed to please his flesh. He wanted to play roulette with God's word, take it on, and he finds out the hard way, when it comes to God, the house always wins. And in fact, the beautiful irony in this passage is that the very measure he puts in place to try and avoid God's word coming about ends up making it true. Verse 31. Now the king of Aram, Syria, had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, don't fight with anyone, great or small, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and they stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armour. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around, get me out of the fighting, I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot, and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. So the king died, was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. 
all the bravado, all the scamming, all the plotting, all the insurance policies that Ahab tried to put in the way of God's word for years. And 20 years later, a single seemingly random arrow from an archer who, having lost the grand prize of the king of Israel, thought he'd just pick off one last common soldier. And all the prophecies of God's judgment on Ahab come crashing down. He dies, the dogs lick his blood, and his dynasty begins to crumble around him. It's so, so complete the irony, isn't it? He tried to get around God's word by deceit in disguising himself as a common soldier, and it's actually his deceit that ends up bringing him down. So 1 Kings 22 shows us something really important about how God often deals with sin, and it comes in the surprising terms of often letting sinners have exactly what they want. Romans 1, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. So initially, it might seem like God's letting sinners get away with their sin, but actually it never is. It may take a while. It may look like you can indulge in sin without consequence. Twenty years Ahab reigned, but eventually, inevitably, if you sow to please the flesh, it will become clear that you, you haven't played God for a fool. You are the fool. Been a pretty heavy sermon. I feel like we need some lightness. Let me give a lighter illustration of this. Um, there was a minister who loved fishing. It's not a real person. Uh, but one Sunday, it was just the perfect conditions, and the desire to skip church and head out to the jetty was just too strong. So he chucked a sickie. I called on his student minister to take church for him, preach a sermon, <coughs> and then headed out secretly to his favorite spot. And uh, in heaven, an angel was watching. And uh, he came up to God and said, God, do you see what this guy's done? Are you going to let him get away with it? God says, leave it to me. So the guy sets up, uh, casts out. A couple minutes later, boom, he's on. Whoa! Reels it in, beautiful fight, biggest fish he's ever caught. Casts out again, a couple minutes later, boom, he's on again. This time he's even bigger. Uh, by the time he's finished, he's broken records. It's unbelievable. Back in heaven, the angel turns to God and says, God, what's going on? I thought you were going to punish him. Instead, you've just given him the fishing trip of a lifetime. God turns to the angel and smiles and says, yep, you know the best thing? He can never tell anyone about it. <laughs> All right, bit of a facetious example. <laughs> also fictional. But I hope you get the point. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And it's so true of real life, isn't it? Even immediately, you sow in sexual immorality, what do you reap? A moment's pleasure, and then broken relationships, sexual dissatisfaction, and desperate loneliness. You sow in greed and selfishness, what do you reap? Insecurity and discontent. You sow in humility, repentance and faith, and what do you reap? Honour, joy, forgiveness and deep security. It is always true with God and it is often true with people as well, isn't it? A man reaps what he sows. And so this section ought to challenge us. 
who are you sowing to please? The flesh or God's spirit? Well, let's wrap up. God's word and you. Uh, What this section shows us beyond the shadow of a doubt is that the sovereign God who holds all power in his hands often does his best work in ways that seem initially unimpressive and weak, but in the end testify all the more to his complete control over absolutely everything and his unbreakable plan to save his people from sin. We see this so clearly in the judgment on Ahab, but in the end it's just a shadow and a foretaste getting us ready for God's final and ultimate victory over all who stand opposed to him. See, could God's true king and saviour appear any weaker or less impressive than a man strung up to die on a cross? But if you look beneath the surface to what's really going on, what you see is that small charge laid in exactly the right place to do just what is needed. What seems so pathetic and innocuous, a random Jew crushed and executed by the mighty Roman Empire, created that crack in the damn wall that allowed God's grace to break the power of evil and sin and flood through to save sinners like you and me, as God has always planned. So that finally is the wonderful message of the dark narrative in 1 Kings 22. So I wonder what you need to take from 1 Kings 22. Do you need to take its warning? Brothers, you are here studying at theological college to be ministers. That's an awful lot of facade already put up there. What's going on in your heart? 1 Kings 22 says, you cannot avoid the word of the sovereign God. You and I will stand under its judgment and at that point, every smokescreen will be swept away and we will be laid bare. So are you ready or are you Ahab? Or do you need to hear instead its comfort? That is, nothing can defeat the word of our God. You may have to suffer for it. You may have to persevere through very difficult situations as godly people did in Ahab's day. But 1 Kings 22 says, the Lord Jesus holds us in his hands, the hands that were nailed to the cross, so we might know nothing can ever rip us from his love or the victory that he won for us that day. So the word of God will always have its way. Brothers, do you need its warning, its comfort, or both? Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, the experience of Ahab can seem so silly and distant to us, but we thank you for the reminder of just how close it is to our own hearts. So we thank you for the way that Ahab can illustrate our own sinfulness, but we thank you even more that Ahab illustrates in contrast the wonder and joy and power of the cross of Christ. So we pray that we who are preparing to represent Jesus to the world might be faithful stand before you unashamed in our ministry. 
So if there's anything that we need to clear out of the way in order for that to happen, Father, please expose it to us and help us to be unafraid to expose it to you in confession. But if there are any of us who are struggling at this point to persevere, please comfort us with the knowledge that even though unimpressive and perhaps unseen, that your victory is complete and sure because it was won for us through the death of Jesus. So help us cling on to him, we pray, for our whole lives. In Jesus' name, amen.